turn to Acts chapter 4. We're continuing our series uh, looking at the issue of revival, which I believe is one of the church in America's greatest needs. Uh, I, I don't believe that revitalization, genuine revitalization, is going to come apart from revival. Acts chapter 4, verse 23. And I said there was a, wasn't going to be a test, but I, I was wrong. Does anyone remember what happened February 3rd, 1970? You remembered. Yeah, that, that was a, the Asbury College revival. Well, what, what, what was supposed to be a normal chapel service uh, where a professor was supposed to deliver a sermon, uh, he felt uh, led to simply share his testimony and pray. And student after student came forward. What was supposed to be an hour chapel lasted days and days. God worked in mighty powerful ways. And, you know, it wasn't just Asbury. Uh, you know, in the 1968 and 1969 on the West Coast, uh, there was the Jesus People Movement that birthed uh, the Calvary Chapel uh, uh, group of churches led by Chuck Smith. Uh, it, it got Greg Laurie, a uh, famous evangelist, uh, he, he is a product of uh, that revival. Yeah, yeah, Paul. There have been seasons in the life of the church uh, from Acts onward where God draws near through the Holy Spirit in, in such a remarkable way and fills and empowers His people with a greater joy and greater effectiveness in reaching the lost. You know, I said last week uh, that we often get a wrong-headed understanding what revival is. You know, if you've grown up in Baptist churches or if you've been in enough Baptist churches, you have the idea where revival is something for the lost people in the community. Uh, and how it usually works in a Southern Baptist church is uh, the pastor recruits an evangelist who comes to the church maybe uh, Sunday through Wednesday. And what the evangelist does is he kind of steps on everyone's toes on uh, Sunday evening attendance, Wednesday night attendance, and tithing. Which, you know, uh, besides the point, that that's not the role of evangelist. Uh, evangelist is to share the gospel with the lost. But it's just interesting uh, that when we think of something uh, that, that evolves in evangelism and revival, that we have uh, th this idea that we can schedule it, we can put it on a calendar, uh, that we, we can have a program to bring it about. But if revival is a, a, a mighty work of God through His Spirit, as Jesus says in the Gospel of John chapter 3, that uh, the wind blows where it will, and so it is with those who are born of the Spirit. If uh, the Spirit is God, God will do as He pleases. And we can pray for revival, we can prepare for revival, but we will never force God's hand into giving revival. Uh, I love uh, what uh, the president at Asbury at the time uh, said about revival. Uh, there's a, a YouTube video of him talking about it, and he, he, somebody asked him, why Asbury? And he said, probably because we needed it the most. And it, it was interesting. He said uh, that uh, the denominations that were affected, uh, they're a United Methodist uh, seminary, uh, yet he said Southern Baptist uh, benefited more from that revival 
than the United Methodist. With that in mind, uh, let's turn our attention to our text this evening. I'll begin reading in verse 23, chapter 4. When they were released, uh, that is uh, Peter and John, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I think, uh, first off, uh, we need to understand uh, the, the context of, of what is going on here. Peter and John have just been brought before uh, the high priest uh, after uh, the miraculous healing in the temple. So now they are before the council. They've been arrested. Uh, the high priest are trying to figure out what to do with them. The high priest are afraid of the crowds uh, that have gathered. And so uh, they have uh, told uh, Peter and John, threatened them, uh, saying... That that they are not to preach in the name of Jesus. You know, I can't imagine that that was how Peter and John were hoping things were going to go so far in their ministry. You know, here they are doing what the Lord has commissioned them to do, and they are finding the task humanly impossible. Now, place yourselves in the shoes of Peter and John. Here they are, just over a month, a little after a month after their Lord and Savior. Yeah, it's 40 days after the resurrection. A little after they had seen their Lord and Savior crucified. And here they are, they've been brought before the very people who were responsible for the death of Jesus, who through their three years of ministry with them, constantly sought his imprisonment, his arrest, and ultimately his death. So here they are, they've been brought before the high priest, they've been told by these chief priests that they are not to preach in the name of Jesus. Verse 18, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak for what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, so uh, the apostles demonstrate their resolve uh, and the chief priests uh, make it clear that they are entirely serious that if Peter and John want to continue on the path that they're on, it's not going to go well. 
Now, I, I don't know about you, but if I were Peter and I, or, or John in that position, I would have a, a certain sense of intimidation there. Uh, I would have no thought in my head that these are empty threats. I would remember, especially if I were John, who is there for the entire imprisonment and crucifixion of Christ, whereas Peter denied Jesus three times and ran away and didn't get to be an eyewitness to the agonies of Christ. If I were them, I would be absolutely certain that these were not empty threats. So here they are, they're, they're finding their position humanly impossible. They have uh, come between a rock and a hard place. You know, they know they should continue doing what the Lord has called them to do. They also know they face a very real challenge. They find uh, the cultural elites of their day want nothing to do with their gospel and would rather them uh, be silenced. And so let us consider their response, their initial response to that. Luke records that when they were released, uh, they they didn't go home and they didn't uh, sob and console themselves and say, there, there, we've had such a hard time. Well, what they did is they first, they went immediately to the other believers. It demonstrates the unity that they had with their fellow believers. But note how they respond. They don't establish a committee. It seems like every denomination uh, today, uh, whatever the ill of our day is considered, it seems like the need is to establish a committee to review it and report on it next year. That's not what they do. They don't establish a committee to review the religious inclinations of religious leaders in Jerusalem. They don't think to themselves, okay, what we need is a better program. Our program of ministry is obviously defective because we just presented the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit to the chief priest uh, and they've rejected the gospel. So we need a new program of ministry. That's not what they do. Because when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, They lifted their voices together to God. Their response to the utter urgent need of their day was prayer. They understood that prayer was the most important thing that they could do. They understood that it was the most fundamental activity they could be engaged in. Later on, when uh, there is the controversy around the care of the widows in the church, uh, the apostles tell them uh, it's not fit for them to leave off a prayer in the ministry of the Word. Prayer had the priority for these men. Prayer had uh, the priority for this infant church uh, that had just been birthed on Pentecost. They understand that apart from prayer, they are utterly helpless. We have much to learn from them. We in America, I've heard it said before from those outside of America, because we're terrible judges of what it's like, what Americans are like, because we are Americans. But those from other places say that we Americans have a get-it-done attitude. 
which is all well and good in some areas of life, but when it comes to the commission that God has given His church, that God has given to believers, of going and making disciples of all nations, of teaching them to obey all that He has commanded, of preaching the gospel to every creature, to all the nations, God has given us what is essentially a humanly impossible task. God has given us a task that we cannot do in our own power. And if we somehow think we've done it, we've counterfeited it. We haven't done the genuine work. God has given us a task that we can only do through His power and His presence in the life of the church. That's why in the Great Commission, Jesus began with, Behold, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me, therefore... Go and make disciples, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. See, the disciples are completely aware that there is no substitute for the power and presence of God in their ministry. So they go to the one person that can intervene in the situation that they find themselves in. And if you find yourselves troubled with the conditions of our community, if you find yourselves uh, troubled by the conditions of our country, know this, uh, that it won't be somebody on the ballot sheet in November that can change our community and country. It is God alone that has this power. So with this humanly impossible task put in front of them with the threatenings of the priest uh, who have uh, probably threatened their lives. The apostles and their followers have come together in united prayer to God because they understand it's not their... It's not going to happen in their power. The gospel of the church, it's not theirs, it's His. And so they pray, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David your servant said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. And they go on to make it clear, God, this is all your plan. We didn't come up with this plan for your son to come and die. We didn't plan for your son to be crucified. We didn't plan this gospel. This is not our gospel. This is your gospel. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus. You know, this is your Jesus. This is your son we're serving, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Essentially what they're reminding themselves and bringing before God is this task that you have placed before. It is your mission in the world. It is your desire for the gospel to be preached. It was your desire for your son to die on the hill of Calvary. It is your desire that repentance be preached in his name to every nation. So given that this is your work, Father, empower us because we are 
your servants. And in that, they're remembering what Jesus taught them in the Gospel of John, that apart from him, they could do nothing. John chapter 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And yet so often, uh, when we look at uh, churches across America, uh, so many churches seem that they can do a great deal without him. And we might be able to raise funds without the power of God in the church. We might even be able to draw a crowd. It seems like several uh, have learned how to create a spectacle to draw a crowd. But we will never speak the word with such boldness that it transforms the lives of the lost, transforms communities so that those around, like later on in Acts, will say that the world has been turned upside down. You know, in and of ourselves, apart from him, we could have a nice uh, a, a religious type social club, but we will have nothing of his life transforming power. One of my favorite preachers who's been dead long before I was alive, A.W. Tozer, once said that the Holy Spirit could leave some churches and they wouldn't notice until months later. These disciples clearly know that they are out of their limits, that they are facing a problem far beyond them in their limited capacities. But they know the one who is all-powerful, who has all things in his hand, who has sent out the Spirit on Pentecost. Jesus had told them that they would receive power from on high. And here, they are feeling anything but powerful after they've been arrested, they've been threatened, they've been intimidated. They know that in and of themselves, they have no power. And so they come to God saying, God, this is your mission, this was your son, this is your gospel Grant it, give us this privilege, because they understand it, even though all the hardships they're facing, it is a privilege to be involved in the work of sharing the gospel and ministering to the lost. It's a very different from what we see in modern evangelicalism. Oftentimes, it seems like people think it's a, a drudgery and a chore to serve the Lord. But here, these apostles who have just had their lives threatened by the very men who turned Jesus over for crucifixion want the privilege of being able to serve in this gospel, knowing full well that it will cost them their lives. And we know that of uh, the 11 disciples uh, uh, that were the original apostles, 10 of them would meet martyrs' death. John, uh, they tried to, but they just couldn't kill him. He would end his life on exile in the Isle of Patmos. And so they pray, Grant, give us this privilege that we would speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Well, what they're saying is, God, unless you act in a mighty, powerful way in and through the proclamation of the gospel, nothing's going to happen. They're saying, well, we can preach till we're blue in the face, but unless your power is involved in this, 
it is in vain. How does God respond? How does God respond when His people desperately pray how they need Him? You know, as I've said before, our God is not the God of Deist who's created everything and taken a step back. And it's not as if God has sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross and has taken a step back. He is still involved in the life of His church. John has that vision in Revelation where Jesus is walking in the midst of the lampstands. Jesus promises us that He is with us always, even to the end of the age. How did God respond? Verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They knew God heard their prayers. They knew that God was active. God literally shook the room. And in our day and age, uh, where uh, so often, uh, whether we knowingly do it or not, we fall into these uh, traps of naturalism, and we think, how could a room be shaken? Uh, one of my uh, favorite preachers uh, of the World War II era, uh, Martin and onwards, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, talks about when, uh, you know, when he was preaching at Westminster Chapel in London uh, during uh, the German bombing of London, uh, one of the V2 rockets hit uh, nearby their chapel and caused their church to shake, plaster falling everywhere. And he made the argument, if a simple man can build a rocket that could shake a church building, then surely the God who created the heaven, the earth, and the sea can shake a room in response to the, <coughs> to the pr prayers of his people. But that's not all. He didn't just shake the room. He filled them. Note, which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I've said last week that oftentimes that we have this, we have this mentality, whether we think it or not, that once we receive the Holy Spirit at conversion and regeneration, we think, you know, that's it. There's no more to it. But these are men who were filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Uh, this is not regeneration. This is not them getting saved again. This is God drawing near to them in a mighty and powerful way for more effective ministry so that they would minister in a way that they could not in their human capacity. You know, throughout the history of the church, uh, there have been men uh, that have uh, known uh, th th this extraordinary level of filling. I think uh, we we've all heard the name of D.L. Moody, started Moody Bible College, started Moody uh, Publishing. Uh, he was one of the great evangelists of our day. And in his journal, Moody talks about how he prayed for a great experience with God. Moody says, I began to cry as never before for a greater blessing from God. The hunger increased. I really felt that I did not want to live any longer. Editor said he had been a Christian, not only a Christian, but a minister and in charge of a mission for some time. He was getting conversions, but still he wanted more. 
But he continues, I kept on crying all the day that God would fill me with his spirit. One day in the city of New York, oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. Paul had an experience of which he had never spoke of for 14 years. I can only say God revealed himself to me, and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. Martha Lloyd-Jones commenting on this says, It was so overwhelming he felt as if he was going to be physically crushed. The love of God, that is what is meant by the love of God shed abroad in your hearts. That is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That is what turned D.L. Moody from a good, regular, ordinary minister into the evangelist who is so signally used of God in this and in other countries. So, so often we get caught in the routines of church that we think that all that we're doing is all that could ever be done. We think that that is all that God could do. And we get stuck in the routines of the ordinary. But we need to remember that we serve the God who created the heavens and the earth. We serve the God who was at work in the church of Acts, who worked in mighty and humanly unexplainable ways. No human sociologist can explain how the beleaguered group of disciples in that upper room in fear for their lives turned the Roman world upside down. The only thing that can explain it is that God in his spirit worked in a mighty and powerful way. You might uh, look at the history of the church and you see the decline of the church and the reason why the church declined in the centuries after that is the church fell asleep and got into a routine only to be waking up uh, when men such as Martin Luther uh, uh, experienced uh, the gospel of God afresh and God uh, poured out his spirit in a powerful way. What God did for those first disciples, filling them with the Holy Spirit, giving them boldness to preach the Word. And I think that that, that, that is one thing. There, there are those that want to talk about the Holy Spirit, but their obsession is on external phenomena of the Holy Spirit. When you read Luke, his emphasis is on what the Spirit does in advancing the proclamation of the Gospel. The Holy Spirit fills them so that they would have boldness in sharing the gospel. The Holy Spirit doesn't fill them so that they could be miracle workers and amass a large fortune for themselves. The Spirit empowers them so that those who are blind would see and those who have not heard will hear. And so too in our day, the the Lord can use us in mighty and powerful ways. I like what Lloyd-Jones says about this issue of filling in regards to what is a revival. He asks, what is a revival? It is God's outpouring pouring out His Spirit. It is this tremendous filling that happens to numbers of people at the same time. So what we're seeing here in Acts. Uh, the Holy Spirit has been poured out on all of them. Uh, they have a greater boldness, and that has brought about unity, and that brings about a transforming witness uh, that the gospel is preached Well, Jones continues, you need not wait for a revival to get it. 
Each of us is individually commanded to seek it. We're commanded in Ephesians not to be drunk with wine, but to be filled with the Spirit. You know, 1, 2, 10, 20, 30, you know, as the number of people seek the Lord's work in their lives in this mighty and powerful way, that's when revival happens. You know, no revival ever happened, no great awakening ever happened in the history of Christianity where a large uh, group of people uh, decided they were going to happen, uh, that they were going to make it happen. It's always started with that one person that had a burden, that saw the great need of the church, the great need for the world in spiritual darkness, and the Lord burdened their hearts so that they came apart and they would pray, and they would pray for boldness and earnesty that God would draw near to them, that they would be a cause to make a difference in the world. And others would see that difference that God was making in that one, and then one would become two, and a revival would take place. Oh, Jones goes on, better times of revival of God, as it were, fills a number of people together. They almost describe it as the Spirit falling upon them. That is a revival, and that is the greatest need of the church today. And it is only as you and I as individuals know the reality of these things and know their power and their glory and are concerned about being always filled with the Spirit that we shall not... Only thank God, but also pray to Him for revival and ask Him to come upon the church again as He has come in ages past. As we are looking at the 50th anniversary when God worked in our region of Kentucky in a mighty powerful way where those uh, that were playing at Christianity uh, who were more into a tradition of life than a saving relationship with Christ had their worlds turned upside down and whereas those who were outside of salvation came into salvation because God worked in a mighty powerful way that God that worked then can work today. He hasn't changed. He is there. All we need to do is pray. And He may bless us with that great need of revival. So, Lord of Prayer. Father, we do pray for revival at the individual level. That you would fill us. That you would overwhelm us with a sense of your love, your care, your compassion and concern towards us. That we would even begin to have a, a greater understanding how you love us. That you have sent your only Son for us. And that love would overwhelm us and motivate us and control us. As Paul says, uh, we are compelled by the love of God in Christ Jesus. That love of You through Your Son would so transform us that we would know, at least on an individual level, this revival. Let us not be satisfied uh, to, uh, for a routine religion, but may we know this living relationship with You, a God of love who has sent His Son to demonstrate His love. Uh, through the change that You work in our lives, uh, may the lost come from the kingdom of darkness to be transported into the kingdom of Your marvelous light. For this we pray in Your Son's holy and precious name. Amen.